Hey, everyone. Well, the way that I want to jump right into things this morning is by having you picture the bull riding event that you can see at any rodeo. And, and even if you've never been to a rodeo before, you know what I'm talking about. So, so before this bull riding event starts, while the bull and the rider are still in the chute, things are pretty calm, right? I mean, certainly there's, there's preparation and anticipation, but things are pretty still and they're pretty contained. But then the gate opens up, and what you see is anything but still and contained. I mean, it's not like the rider is like gently steering the bull around obstacles and over jumps and things like that. No, the, the rider is just hanging on for his dear life. And, and as we keep going into the book of Acts this morning, as we get into Acts chapter 2, we're going to see there's a whole lot of overlap between what we see here with the bull riding event and what happens in Acts chapter 2. You see, but before Acts chapter 2, as the book, as the book of Acts starts, there, there, there's a lot of stillness in the book. There's not a lot of commotion going on, not a, lot of, not a lot of activity. The disciples are huddled together in one room. But by the time we get pretty soon after Acts chapter 2, that huddle has broken. The game has started. And we see the disciples not huddled, but we see movement and mission and them taking the gospel that they've been given through Jerusalem, into the surrounding area, and then even getting to Rome, which before airplanes and cars was a long way away. Or, or before Acts chapter 2, right? There's, there's, um, there's only about 120 total disciples of Jesus in the whole world. So in this room, that's just a small fraction of the people that are gathered here. But by the time we get to the end of Acts chapter 2, we see that number has multiplied to 3,000. And then keep reading into Acts chapter 4, that number jumps even more to 5,000. And so, so the thing we should see is that something happens in Acts chapter 2. Something happens to make this huddled group get going on mission. Something happens to, to make this number 120 jump into the thousands. Something happens where the gate opens up and the picture changes from preparation and anticipation to to, to bold movement, to fresh life. I mean, there is no way for me up here this morning to exaggerate how, how significant, how, how pivotal Acts chapter 2 is as a turning point in the story of the church. And so, so hopefully by now we're asking the question, so Tim, what happens in Acts chapter 2? I mean, what happens that propels the church forward in all these ways? Why is it such a turning point? And the answer is that the Holy Spirit comes in Acts chapter 2. The, the third person of the Trinity, so we're talking about God here, comes in Acts chapter 2. And the Spirit comes in a way that he had never come before. He comes to live in Jesus' followers in a way that he never had before. He comes to empower them to advance Jesus' mission in a way that he never had before. And so all those changes we looked at pre-Acts 2, post-Acts 2, all those changes, they didn't happen primarily because someone was working some five-year strategic plan on a yellow pad. I mean, they, they didn't happen because somebody was under the table making some power plays, right? Pulling strings and making things happen. They didn't happen because of clever recruiting formulas and techniques. When you boil everything down, all those changes... From, from, mission, from, from stillness to mission, from small to large. All those changes happen because of the Holy Spirit. 
Because the presence and power of the Holy Spirit comes in Acts 2. The Holy Spirit is the one who energizes everything that is good and God-honoring in the church, about the story of the church, from Acts 2 forward, even into today. And so that means that as we keep working our way through Acts in this series, we cannot ignore Acts chapter 2. That'd be like taking your car to the mechanic, and having him run a diagnostic, and asking him to skip the engine, to ignore the engine. I mean, we have to understand the Holy Spirit. And so by way of quick review, last week, Jeff got us started on this series, took us into Acts 1. And we saw last week that the story of the church, it centers around the mission of God. The church doesn't exist for itself. The church isn't some static institution. But instead, the church is a dynamic movement that is advancing God's purposes, God's mission down the field. We're to be witnesses to Jesus, we saw last week. Telling others about who he is and what he's done. Starting here in our local spheres of influence, but then pushing that as far out as we can go. To the ends of the earth is what Acts chapter 1 says. And then here's what Acts chapter 2 adds to that as we build into the story. Acts chapter 2 shows us that this mission of God that is so central to everything we're about as a church. This mission of God absolutely depends on the presence and power of the spirit of God. The presence and power of the Spirit are vital. I mean, if we're left to ourselves, we will misdirect things or mess things up royally. We can't accomplish God's mission without God's Spirit. And so, so that makes these two words here, the presence and power of the Spirit of God, that makes this statement really important for us to wrap our minds around. Because if we're going to advance the mission, we need to understand the Spirit, His presence and His power, what He's doing. But, but I know that the second I talk about the Holy Spirit, for, for a lot of you, there's all sorts of blips that start showing up on the radar screen of your brain, you know. I mean, some of you are like, all right, he's going to get weird now, you know. Because you've had experiences in the past. You've been talking with individuals or churches in the past where it just, it just gets uncomfortable. It's like personal space, folks, you know. I, I mean, or, or some of you, this is, just, this is just foreign waters. It's unfamiliar territory. Where, where you kind of get God the Father. I mean, you don't fully get him because he's tough to wrap your minds around. He's big, you know. But, but we talk about God the Father a lot here at Brookside. So at least conceptually, we get God the Father. We, we certainly get Jesus Christ because we have the Gospels that show us who he is so clearly. But I think a lot of us, if we were to say, God the Holy Spirit, th th there's just not a lot there that, that, that we know how to, how to think about him, how to talk about the Holy Spirit. One author calls the Holy Spirit the forgotten God. And I think he's right. And so since the presence and power of the Spirit are so vital, today we have to zero in on a question that we need to answer. And that question that we're going to be looking at today is, if the Spirit's so vital, what does it look like when the Spirit is at work? If his presence and power are so important, what do his presence and power lead to? What does it look like? And this isn't some abstract question. Because everyone here who believes in God, we should want to know as much about who God is as we possibly can. We should want to know as much as we can about, about how he's working, how he's involved in our lives. I talk with people all the time. I say, Tim, can I change? Tim, can God use me? Can God work through me to advance this mission we're talking about? 
Well, through an understanding of the Holy Spirit, that's how we answer that question with a yes. Yes, God is still working in you as a follower of Jesus Christ. He can still change you. God can use you through the Holy Spirit to do tremendous good wherever he's put you and then further out from that. Or for anyone here who's asking if God is worth believing in. Understanding the Holy Spirit will show you more about who God is. And I think it will show you more about how involved God is in our world. And how involved God can be in your life. So let's get into Acts 2. Let's start answering our question. What does it look like when the Spirit's at work? So let's start reading right away just in Acts chapter 2 verse 1. And so when the day of Pentecost came, Pentecost was, was this major Jewish festival that comes about 50 days after Passover. So this is about 50 days after Jesus' crucifixion, give or take a few days, just to give you a sense of the timeline of things. When the day of Pentecost came, all 120 of Jesus' disciples are gathered in one place. And so suddenly, the, the, there's this sound blowing the decibels off the charts, Suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind comes from heaven, fills the whole house where they were sitting. So this, is, this, is, this isn't like a breeze blowing through the, through the house. This is a tornado of wind that they're hearing. And then they start seeing some stuff that just blows their mind too. Verse 3, verse three so they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues. As the Spirit enabled them. And then if you just keep reading a few verses down on your own, you see that these other tongues are actually foreign languages here in Acts 2. Where, where people who, who had never studied, for example, German or Hindi or Farsi or French, it'd be like me being able to speak any of those languages, even though I haven't studied them, fluently without an accent. That's what's going on here. I mean, so, so just imagine... Being here in this event that actually happened. Imagine the, the, the freight train of sound. Imagine seeing tongues of fire resting on people. I mean, this is a supernatural experience that we're reading about here in Acts 2. And in our world that loves to reduce things to the material and to the naturalistic and to the rationalistic explanation... We need to be reminded that our God, the true God, is a supernatural God that can and does work in supernatural ways in this world that he's created. And so, so God is a supernatural God. And as much as we love to gravitate towards these supernatural things, sometimes we can think that that means the activity of the Spirit requires a simple copy and paste of what we see here in Acts 2. Where, where we're talking about the Spirit, that means we need to hear things, see tongues of fire, and I need to start, start speaking French. You know, the, that's not what the activity of the Spirit looks like. The activity of the Spirit isn't always just a simple copy and paste of what we see here in Acts 2. That doesn't mean we just skip over these verses. It doesn't mean we just say, that was then, this is now. I, I think there's something we, we want to learn from what we read here, even in these first four verses of Acts chapter 2. And here's what that is. You see, in the Old Testament, wind and fire, things that we see very, very forcefully in Acts chapter 2, wind and fire are indicators of God's presence. 
How did God come to Moses calling him to re- release the, uh, the, the Israelite slaves from slavery? He came to them in, in fire, in a burning bush in Exodus chapter 3. In 1 Kings 19, God is about to speak to one of his prophets, this guy Elijah. And, and, and God's presence is preceded by a rushing wind. And so, so the same wind and fire that we see here in Acts chapter 2, those are indicators that through the Holy Spirit, God is present. And, and so, so, so that's where we do start being able to answer our question we're looking at today. How is the Spirit present? Here's how. Because of the Spirit, we have the confidence of God's presence. The Spirit and God's presence go hand in hand. And there's just something that boosts confidence when you know somebody is with you, right? Um, the, uh, there's just something that gives you courage to try new things when you know you're not alone. A few months ago, my twins were in the middle of a fundraising time at school, which is everybody's, every, every parent's at least, favorite time of the year as parents, right? So, so they were fundraising, trying to hit these targets so they can get this prize that, that, they, that they wanted and then probably never used, I don't know. But so, so they, so they had these goals, and they, they wanted to hit the, the two houses on either side of us as part of this fundraising thing they're doing for school. And so even knowing that these houses are just footsteps away from our front door, and even knowing that they know the families that live in these houses. So these aren't strangers. These are people we wave to. These are people, people we know. We know their families. The twins still didn't want to go alone. They didn't want to go alone to knock on the door, make the sales pitch, and, and get the response. They wanted me to go with them. They wanted the confidence of knowing somebody else was there alongside them. And so, so, so here's how this is helpful. This truth that through the Spirit we have the confidence of God's presence. Remember that one of the things the Spirit is about, one of the big things the Spirit is about, is helping advance God's mission through us. So, so that means that as we, te- as we take steps of obedience, pushing God's mission down the field, we'll take fresh steps of obedience, we'll take bold steps of obedience, and that will be into areas we don't always know where we're going. It'll feel awkward sometimes. It'll feel uncomfortable sometimes. But we go knowing that we go in the confidence of God's presence. God's presence is with us through the Spirit. And so, so some of you, I, I know that some of you are, are getting ready to go on your first Go Teams trip this year. Applications in, talking with John Alford early this week. Training starts for a lot of our trips today. So we're going to take the gospel out around the globe through all the trips that are going out overseas this year. And some of you that are going on these trips, now that the application is in, you click send. Now that training is here, now that we're officially in 2017, the trip gets closer and closer. That trip is looming large in your mind. And you're starting to feel afraid. You're starting to have questions. You're starting to feel nervous, anticipation, you know. Well, 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 let me remind you today that you do not go on those trips alone. Not only do you have the foundation of good training, knowing you're surrounded by a good team, most importantly, Acts 2 shows us we go on God's mission with the confidence of knowing God's presence is with us. There is nowhere you can go that God doesn't go with you as his disciple carrying forth the gospel to the ends of the earth or to the neighbor next door. Because this isn't just for people going on trips around the world. 
This is for all of us. Acts 1.8, be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, the ends of the earth. That's for all of us, right? So, so if you're a student, you should be thinking about how to tell roommates, people around campus, about Jesus. We should always be thinking about how to talk with neighbors, co-workers, friends, family, about Jesus. It's, uh, it's uncomfortable. It's awkward. So many conversations I have, they always feel awkward. It's always like, okay, let's just take the step. But we keep taking the steps, Brookside, because we go in the confidence knowing that God's presence is with us. All right, let's go back to Acts 2. I'm just going to summarize the next bit. And so, so far we've seen the Holy Spirit descend on Jesus' disciples. They start speaking in foreign language. There's the sound, there's the sights. It's just natural that all of this draws a crowd. And we know from the rest of Acts 2, this crowd is in the thousands. People are like, what's going on? I love the way it says it in uh, verses 12 and 13. Acts 2 says, amazed and perplexed. The crowd asked one another, what does this mean? And then verse 13, some, however, made fun of the disciples and said, it's only 9 a.m., but they're drinking. They're, they're drunk, and they're starting to see the effects of that. That's what's going on here, you know. And, and then I love that Peter, so remember, he's one of the disciples here filled with the Holy Spirit. Peter stands up to say, Let, let's make sure we understand this clearly. Let's make sure we're clear on what this is and what this isn't. And then in the next few verses, Peter stands up to, to explain that this isn't the disciples are drunk. Just give us some credit, you know. He says, instead, everything you've seen here today is just God's promises to this Old Testament prophet named Joel hundreds of years ago. Those are God's promises playing out. Peter says, this is just God's plan playing out. God being faithful to fulfill his promises. And then in verse 22, Peter shifts gears away from explaining the commotion, from explaining the sights and the sounds, and he starts talking about Jesus. Now, remember, the crowd didn't ask about Jesus here. The crowd wants to know about the sights and the sounds, but Peter wants to talk about Jesus. I, I love the phrase that Jeff used a few weeks ago. Where, where he uh, talking about something else, but, but here we see Peter shift gears without a clutch. And then if you count these sorts of things, Peter spends twice as long in this passage talking about Jesus as he did answering any questions about what's going on with the tongues of fire, the wind, and the foreign languages. He, says, he spends twice as long talking about Jesus. Let me just give you a taste of this. So Peter has been talking about Jesus. Let's see where this sermon, this speech ends up in verse 32. Peter says, God has raised this Jesus to life. And we are all pointing to the other apostles. He says, we're witnesses of it. We've seen it. We've seen Jesus alive. Exalted to the right hand of God, he has received from the Father the promised Holy Spirit and has poured out on you what you now see and hear. And then skip down to verse 36. Therefore, let all Israel, so, so this whole crowd that Peter is talking to, let everyone be assured of this, that God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. And so what we need to see here, the bottom line of all of this, is that Peter has Jesus on the brain. He's not thinking about the rushing wind. He's not thinking about the tongue of fire that came down and rested on him. He's not thinking, how did I speak that language Peter's thinking about Jesus. 
And so that brings us to another, another point, another answer to our question. When the Spirit is at work, we are, we are captivated by Jesus. We're captivated by him. You see, the, the Spirit-filled life and the Spirit-filled church isn't just obsessed with the Spirit. The, the Spirit-filled life and the Spirit-filled church is obsessed with Jesus. I, I mean, the, the Spirit-filled life, it thinks about Jesus, it sings about Jesus, it talks about Jesus. The Spirit makes Jesus great in our hearts, and then the Spirit makes Jesus capture our imaginations. And so, so this, is where, this is where I've got to bring up the Super Bowl game from last weekend. Um, now, I'll make it clear from the get-go right here that I am not a Patriots fan. But I'm not a huge Atlanta fan either. But since it's the Super Bowl, I went over to a friend's house, had a great time, watched the first half. And I think the Falcons were up by 25 or something, by, by a lot of points. So it's halftime. Kids have school the next day. We're like, we need to get home. This game is done. So Carrie and I take our boys home and get them all settled, get them in bed, things like that. So I turn, back the, turn the game back on just to see where things are at and to watch commercials. And to my surprise, I turn the game on just in time to see the Patriots pull with an eight. So they'd already closed the gap by a lot. I keep watching because I'm like, this game is getting good. Keep watching, see them tie it, and then see the first overtime in Super Bowl history. And then I see the Patriots win it. It's crazy. And again, I'm not a Patriots fan. But I'm captured by the fact that Bill Belichick, Tom Brady, just won the Super Bowl after being down by all they were. So, so I'm captured by this. I go upstairs, find Carrie. Carrie is the person I would describe as maybe the least interested in professional football that I know. So I go upstairs, and I'm finding Carrie to tell her about the end of this game. And so, so here we are, an anti-Patriots fan. Have I said that? An anti-Patriots fan talking with someone who doesn't know why pro football is a thing about a game we didn't even care about six hours earlier. We couldn't not talk about it because, I, because we were captivated by it. Brookside, we want to be so captivated by Jesus that we can't not talk about him. We want to put Jesus on display, and we just want to get out of the way enough that we show you how compelling Jesus is, who he is, and all he offers. So that way we, as a church, can't not talk about Jesus. And the thing is, when that happens, that's the work of the Spirit in our lives and in, in this church, making Jesus great. It's what he does. All right, there's, there's one more thing that Acts 2 shows us about the Spirit's work. Let's jump right into it. When, when the Spirit's at work, hearts change and desires are redirected. And so, so this is just how I summarize everything that happens after Peter's speech in Acts 2. This is how I summarize everything that happens by way of response to what Peter says. So let's fly through some of this. Verse 37 says that when the people heard this, so, so the this here, this crowd of thousands, when the people heard this, which is just Peter saying, God has made this Jesus whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, they were cut to the heart. There's this deep, visceral, emotional reaction. 
And they said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? So, so there's no digging in their heels. There's no defensive posture. There's no playing this down. The, the people want to know, how can we be saved? What do we do? And when you think about this, it is crazy to think about how this shows changed hearts. Not only that the Spirit gets inside, gets inside of us deeply enough to cut us to the heart, but, but I'm sure that there are people in this crowd that Peter is preaching to that just a few weeks earlier were in the crowd at Jesus' trial, shouting, crucify him. And so how does the crowd, how do individuals go from shouting, crucify him, to brothers, what must we do to be saved? How does that sort of heart change happen? The answer is the Holy Spirit. And the Spirit is doing that same work today. A lot of you here can point to how that Spirit, how the Spirit has done that work in your heart, getting inside of you, and making you who were once resistant to Jesus, respond to Jesus. There are some of you here this morning that, that have been resistant to Jesus, but for the last few weeks, Jesus and life with Jesus is more compelling to you than it's ever been. Let me just suggest to you how to understand that. That's the work of the Spirit in your heart. Let me encourage you today as a pastor who cares about people, lean into that. Don't resist that. Lean in because that's what the Spirit does. He changes hearts. And then Peter tells us what to do. We keep reading verse 38. It says, Peter replies, repent. Just turn to Jesus. Repent and be baptized. That's just his way of saying, choose to follow Jesus and then make it known that you're following Jesus through baptism. And then verse 41, keep reading, shows us the people respond, not in a trickle, but in a fire hose sort of way. Verse 41 says, then those who accepted Peter's message were baptized, and about 3,000. I mean, can you imagine that going from 120 to 3,000 after a sermon? I have no such expectation, you, you know? But, but, but that's the work of the Spirit, working in hearts. 3,000 were added to their numbers that day. And, and then as, as, an, as a side note on baptism, seeing this, this sort of language... Repent and be baptized. That's why we talk about baptism so much at Brookside. Not because baptism is how people are saved. Hear me very clearly. It is not. We are saved by God's grace through faith. But it's because baptism is so important in the New Testament. As a way of publicly demonstrating that people have chosen to follow Jesus. They place their faith in him. So this is why I love, just a few weeks ago, we did baptisms here on a Sunday morning. I love it when Mandy said there's more than 20 third to fifth graders who are planning to get baptized next week as part of our kids' ministry. I love that we're starting to think and talk about what it would look like to do a big baptism here on Easter. The reason we do things, these things isn't just to dunk people. The, the reason we do these things is because every baptism is a heart that has been changed by the Spirit. And a life that has been captivated by Jesus. That's why we do it. That's why we want to keep doing it. And so hearts are changed and desires are redirected. So, so as the church multiplies by a lot, 
in growth. Look at how it's described then in verse 42. So these, these thousands of people that have responded to Peter's message about Jesus. What do they start doing? Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship. To the breaking of bread and to prayer. So, so, so this shows that something new had captured the desires of these disciples, of these believers. Because the things we devote ourselves to are the things that we want. They're the things that we desire. I mean, on, on the opening home game of Husker football season, there, there's no sense of obligation for someone who has a season ticket. Like, like if I had a season ticket, there's the offer, folks, you know. It, uh, but, 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 but if that was me, if I had a chance to go to the first game, uh, there'd be no sense of obligation like, boy, now, uh, now I guess I have to go to the game. No, when I, when I get a chance to go to games, I love it. I'm like, okay, let's get there early. Let's follow some stats. Let's find other people that like to talk football. I mean, there, there's no sense of obligation about me going to a Husker football game because I want to. Because, because that game, that event, it's captured my desires. In the same way, at the end of Acts 2, there's no sense of obligation with what these disciples are doing. The early church devotes themselves to these things because Jesus has captured people's desires. People has redirected people's desires. And the Holy Spirit is redirecting desires still today. And to be honest, it often looks a lot like what captured the desires of these early believers. Where, where we, we devote ourselves to biblical teaching. We, we want those things. Some of you have been following Jesus long enough, you know, before you were following Jesus, you weren't really a learner. You tuned sermons out. You didn't read books, but now you're like, yeah, I'm interested in reading articles, blog posts, books. I listen to sermons in a different way. I'm podcasting people. You want to learn because you're, you're desiring biblical teaching. You desire these other things we see here in Acts 2. Community, prayer. That's the work of the Spirit in our, in our midst. Redirecting and shaping our desires. Well, when I started this morning, I talked about how Acts 2 is like this bull riding event at a rodeo where, where the spirit rushes forth dramatically in Acts chapter 2, bringing this, this life and this movement, this sense of mission. But, but where the analogy with bull riding breaks down is that, is that I think successful bull, ride, bull riding lasts something like eight seconds. And then the bull settles down, the bull is corralled, and the bull is contained back in its pen. Well, Brookside, I am here to tell us, to remind us this morning that the bull that is unleashed in Acts 2 has not settled down. He is not contained. He is not still. The spirit that rushes forth in Acts 2 is still moving in big, bold ways in individual lives and in this church. And he's still working in the same ways today that we saw the spirit working back in the first century in Acts chapter 2. So let's just pull up how we've seen the Spirit at work again. This is the same way the Spirit is still working in these big ways, giving us confidence of God's presence, captivating our hearts, our minds, ourselves by Jesus, and then changing hearts and redirecting our desires. The Spirit's still doing those same things. And, and this goal of seeing how the Spirit's at work is so we can keep inviting the Spirit to work 
in these same ways in our lives today. Maybe we invite the Spirit to do this sort of work in our lives for the first time. Maybe for the thousandth time. But knowing what the Spirit is about, we keep asking the Spirit again and again and again to be working in these ways in us and through us. So, so now this morning, I want to just give you a, a, a glimpse of an exercise that we're going to do together. We're going to just take a couple minutes on it. It's not going to take long. But, but a glimpse of something that I hope you do more on your own as well. Where, where we start to just invite this activity of the Spirit that we see up here into our lives. So what I want you to do is I just want, to, I just want you to choose one of those things that you see up on the screen. All these are good, so there's no wrong answer. But just choose one to focus on for right now. And then what I want to do is I'm just going to give you a few seconds of silent prayer. Where, where with, that, with that one thing you've chosen, I want you to invite very specifically the Holy Spirit to work in your life in that specific way. So just ask him. So, so just take a few seconds now in silent prayer. Ask the Spirit to work in that way in your life. All right, let's take one more step. Again, we're just giving you a glimpse of what this looks like. So staying on this same point that you've chosen, I want you to think about what difference applying this, living in light of this, what difference would that make in your life? And so, so here's the question just directly. How would my life look if I leaned into whatever point it is you're, you're thinking about, whatever point it is you've identified? How would my life look? Take just a few more seconds of silent prayer. Pray for the strength to apply this in your life this week. All right, now let me pray for us. And would you stand as a church, and let's, let's close this time in prayer together before Rob comes back up. Heavenly Father, Jesus, thank you for sending the Spirit. The Spirit that is this gift that gives us the power to fulfill the mission you've called us to do. And then, and Lord, this morning, just help these truths we've seen about who the Spirit is and, and what he does. God, energize us and empower us. As, as individual disciples, as, as a church this morning. So Spirit, give us confidence that through you in us, God is with us. May that help us to take steps of bold gospel courage. Spirit, increase our obsession, our, our being captivated by Jesus. Make him great in our hearts again and again and again. And then, Spirit, we, we would ask that you would change our hearts, redirect our desires to the things that honor, that honor you. Jesus, we love you, and we pray these things in your name. Amen.